It's been a minute, so I'm excited to, to get to share with you tonight. Uh, you can turn in your Bible to, to Genesis 1, and we'll, we'll make our way there here in a little bit. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we're so thankful for this opportunity to gather and to, to worship, and I just resonate with, with that prayer that we sang earlier of, may the Lamb receive his reward in us. May my life be a reward for your suffering, Jesus. Everything we have, our accomplishments, our defeats, everything we lay at your feet, we humble ourselves before you and we follow your lead in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So tonight we're going to talk about women. Okay, so you may be feeling excited, nervous. I heard some claps and some like, I see some like discomfort, like shifting in your seat. I also saw some guys kind of give like a, what's that got to do with me? You know, kind of deal. So, but it's, it's going to be good. I think it's a, an important thing for us to engage in and I want to share just a, a brief story, and I'm sure there, were, there are so many others as, as we get into this, but I was listening to a woman share her story a couple weeks ago, and her and her fiance at the time uh, went to their pastor and said, hey, we're, we're planning on moving, uh, and the reason why we're moving is so that she can finish out her degree and get her master's or doctorate, whatever it was, and the pastor looked at him and said, you know, I, I don't understand why you're going to such great lengths, such as like moving and then however much money it's going to cost you to further your education. Uh, because as a woman, you're supposed to just stay at home. And, and so, you know, the, the husband and wife walked away from that conversation and they, because I mean, this is their, their pastor. And so they, they got together and they prayed and sought the Lord on, you know, is, is the Lord calling us to take this step and to, to continue this education for me? Or do we need to, to change plans? And so uh, it even reached the point that, that the pastor refused to marry them um, if they were to, to make that decision. And so, um, and so anyway, they, they prayed and sought the Lord and they felt like, no, I think, I think it's the right thing for us to go and uh, for us to make this decision. And so she does and they move and she continues her education and she eventually goes on to create this thing called Facebook Marketplace. I don't know if you've ever heard of that and I don't know how to feel about that. Like if I'm, am I excited that she made it? Am I, am I saddened by how much money that we've spent buying stuff on Facebook Marketplace? Or you can look at it as how much money we've saved buying stuff on, that's what my wife would say, okay. Uh, but she went on to create Facebook Marketplace, and then she also went on, she's currently the CEO of Ancestry.com. And so in an industry that is not known for being uh, very kingdom-centric, she is leading. As a, as a passionate Jesus follower, she's leading in that industry. And because of that, she's had multiple opportunities to mentor and to pour into literally thousands of leaders. And so this, this question of this and women question, what is, what's women's roles or what are women's roles in leadership, particularly what we're going to spend this week and next week looking at is women's roles in leadership when it comes to leading either in the marketplace, such as business, things like that, or in the church. So uh, we're going to focus on those two areas. We're not going to talk about the home because we've cover that in multiple marriage series and things like that. So if that's something that you're interested in, I can point you in the direction of some resources. I just don't have the time to cover that uh, in these two weeks. I'm going to be hustling just to get through this, okay? But it's an important question for many reasons. Uh, you know, whether you're a woman or not, it's still an important question. It's a question that affects half of the population, okay? Half of the body of Christ is, is directly affected by this conversation, and I would argue that even more than that because of the, the effects and the fruit that can come from it. Um, 
another reason why I think it's important is because we're in a fight. And, and in this fight, depending on your view or your perspective on that question, uh, you're, we're benching half our team in this fight. Okay? Another reason I think it's important is because we're, many of us are raising daughters or we're pouring into granddaughters or we have nieces or we have young people that we're mentoring and pouring into. And depending on how we respond to this question or our, our view or our take on this, on can women lead in the marketplace, can women lead in church, um, it's going to affect how we raise our daughters, um, how we pour into the nieces that we have or the, the young women that we have the opportunity to pour into. And as a pastor, I, this is what I say frequently to our team, as, as spiritual leaders, one of our one of the most important things that we do is we pay attention to what God is doing in people, okay? The same thing is true for, for parents or mentors. It's paying attention to what God is doing in people, paying attention to what God's doing in our children, our sons and our daughters. And uh, in our, the way we think about this question has a, uh, a direct effect on that. Another and one of the most important reasons while we're engaging in this conversation is because Engaging in this, studying it out, looking into this, uh, you'll learn more about God than anything else. Um, in, in engaging this conversation about, you know, what, what does it look like for women to lead? Uh, you're going to learn more about the nature of God than you will learn about women um, as you study it in the scripture. So that's some of the why. Before we get into the content if you know me, you know that I'm going to preface some stuff, okay? In any conversation, I spend more time qualifying things than I do actually sharing things. So, a few pastoral prefaces, okay? So, if I were to preach about work, someone would come up to me afterwards and go, man, we don't need to be talking about work, we need to be talking about rest, Okay? If I was to preach about rest, somebody would come up to me afterwards and say, man, we don't need, we don't need to be talking about rest. We need to be talking about work. Okay? So uh, as I engage in the conversation of women for the next two weeks, this does not mean, uh, it's not a zero-sum game. Okay? It's not me talking about women is at the expense of us not talking about men, uh, especially in today's age, like we need we need boys to have permission to be boys. And we need men to have permission to be men. Okay? We need godly boys. We need godly men. And a time will come whenever we, we share on that. So I'm just saying that to say it's not a zero-sum game. Um, so another thing, we need to approach this conversation with humility and grace. Okay? There are good, God-fearing, Jesus-loving people on both sides of this debate. Okay, so it does us no good, regardless of where you land on, on this, uh, this debate, um, we need to be humble and graceful with it, okay? And it does us no good to put this blanket typecast over everyone who's on the other side, okay? So if you're on one side, you could, uh, you could have this temptation to assume that everyone who disagrees with you is sexist, okay? Women hating people or whatever, okay? That's, that's putting a blanket over an entire group of people. Now, are there some sexist people in that group? Maybe, okay? But for a lot of people in, on that side of the debate, they're trying to faithfully follow the word of God, okay? So let's, not, let's, let's approach this with humility and not just think that you're superior than everyone else. Likewise, if you're on the other side of the debate, uh, you may typecast everyone on the other side as they're all hyper-feminists, okay? And are there some hyper-feminists on that side? Probably. Is everyone? No. Okay? So let's avoid, uh, let's avoid typecasting, putting blanket statements and assumptions over everyone. Uh, another thing is this subject, again, we're prefacing here, we'll get through it, we'll get into the good stuff, trust me, but um, 
this is not a, a matter of orthodoxy and heresy. Okay? You can be you can be a follower of Jesus faithfully and be on both sides of this conversation. Okay? Um, it's not a matter of of breaking fellowship over how somebody lands on this. Um, so uh, now someone's right. Okay? There is someone has to be right. Do we know for sure? Not really. Uh, but, but we have our reasons. There is someone on the right side, okay? Um, but that doesn't mean that the other side are heretics and we need to break fellowship with them, however you land on it. So, um, yeah, I think that's most of the, the qualifiers, okay? Because different, different traditions, different streams answer this question uh, in different ways. Some are pretty extreme on one side of, Women must be silent in the church. You cannot talk. If you are a female, when you walk in those doors, you cannot say a word. Okay? And then some extreme on the other side, well, I guess the most extreme version may be something along the lines of men, women, is there really a difference? There's fluidity. Like, we can all be the same. There's no distinction between the two. Maybe the extreme on the other side. Okay? So, and churches hold both of those views in the extremes. Others, it's women can hold certain roles and they can't hold others. Uh, they can do certain things in the church, um, certain things in the workplace. So anyway, it's pretty varied. If you're brand new, even if you're brand new here, you just saw a woman on stage, okay? So you kind of know where we stand on it. Uh, I was going to say, if you're brand new here and you haven't heard, you know, one of the, uh, the women in our church teach, then, then it may be a surprise to you. But the fact that, like, unless you just walked in, you just saw a woman on the stage with a microphone. So, uh, two. So, so you kind of know uh, where we're at on that. So, enough prefacing. Um, tonight, I want to let you know where we're going to start and what we're going to cover next week as well. So, Tonight, we're going to start by looking at what women did in the Bible uh, from Genesis through Jesus, and next week, we'll pick it up in the letters of Paul and in the early church. The reason why we're starting here and not jumping right into, you know, the hot topic, like the, the really contested, really tense passages, is for the same reason you wouldn't start a conversation about marriage by talking about divorce, Okay. Uh, I was at a wedding this past weekend in which a dad officiated his own daughter's wedding. Whew. Respect. Uh, I, he held it together way better than I did. Every wedding I go to, I'm like, I'm just, just, it's getting closer and closer and harder and harder. Uh, but when he, when he started talking about marriage at this wedding, he didn't open to the divorce passages. He opened to Genesis 1. Okay? Because before we get to the, the letters that everyone wants to, the passages that everyone wants to start at in this conversation, there is a whole lot of story and a whole, uh, a whole lot of history before we get there. Okay? The Bible is a story, and so we're going to start at the beginning of that story. And so uh, we're going to look at uh, a few key women from the Old Testament to, to Jesus and I'm not going to hit all of them, okay? This is not comprehensive. We don't have time for that. You don't have the attention span for that. Uh, y'all are already nodding off. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. You may be, but we have a coffee shop. Grab some coffee. Okay, so uh, we're going to start in Genesis 1, and the, the first woman we're going to look at is Eve. Eve, made in the image of God. So, Genesis 1, uh, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And man there is uh, Adam, and it is the generic term for humanity. So let us make humans in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on them. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. A few key things and some of these we'll spend more time on than others, but I just want to highlight a few things for us to have as context as we engage in some of those more tense passages that we're going to get to next week. The first thing is that God made humanity male and female in his image. This is incredibly significant. This is the, the Hebrew creation story is the only creation story in the ancient Near East. It's the only ancient Near East creation story in which women were also created in the image of God. Okay? Significant. In other ancient Near East creation stories, it would be the men, it would be the kings, it would be the military leaders, it would be these people that were like the gods and created in his image. But this story on page one is already telling us a unique story that it's not just men that are created in the image of God, but it's men and women. It's humanity that's created in his image. And he blesses not just men to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion, but he blesses men and women to fulfill that vocation, that blessing. Um, In Genesis 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay, if you have the New King James, normally I don't get into like the translation stuff. But growing up, this verse in in the King James mess with me. Because in the King James, it says, help meet. Okay? And as a kid, not seeing it spelled, I'm picturing in my head, meet, like M-E-A-T. And I'm like, what in the world is a help meet? You know? And so, I'm trying to figure that out. And it's just, it, it just really messed with me. So, typically, I, I don't get into to that. But uh, this is why... <laughs> I did not read that out of the King James. Because uh, what in the world's a help me? Okay. And you'll come to me later after service and explain it to me and it'll make sense. Uh, but I'm just saying it, it messed with me as a kid. Uh, so, um, helper. Um, the, the word helper is the Hebrew word azer. Azer is, is the Hebrew word there. And so, before we jump to the conclusion that this is a subordinate term, and to be a helper is like kind of an assistant, like, hey, you know, uh, two sugars, one cream in my coffee kind of assistant, which is clearly not something I would do. I've been delivered from tainting my coffee a long time ago. Just drink it straight, okay? Um, don't, don't do that to good coffee, please. If, if I make you coffee and you do that, Enjoy it, because that may be the last coffee I make you. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But before you jump to the conclusion that Azer uh, denotes this, this sense of subordination or you're just my assistant, uh, let's, let's read this. Okay, this is Psalm 70, verse 5. The psalmist says, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God, you are my Azer my help, and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. The psalmist here calls God an azer, a helper. The same thing that when God said, it's not good for man to be alone, I'm going to make him a helper. It's the same word uh, used for, uh, for man's helper as what the psalmist would later refer to God being. So, God's not your butler. Okay, uh, so let's, let's think about that in the right way. Helper, deliver. Uh, another thing from Genesis 2.8 is that we see that aloneness is not what God wants for man. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the worst things, uh, there's this quote that some people think that being alone is the worst thing. It's not. It's being in a room full of people 
and feeling alone. Um, aloneness is not God's intention or desire for us as humans. He wants us to live in the same, he wants us to experience the delight of a loving connection. And so he created, so what God did is he took the atom and he split the atom, okay, into Ish and Isha, male and female, man and woman. And so God splits the atom, so one, he's, out of the one he makes two, male and female. And then what he does from there is he brings those two back into one through marriage. And because uh, his desire is for people to not be alone, but also to experience oneness with one another. And oneness is not sameness, okay? Men and women are different, okay? They won't tell you that in the really expensive schools, but men and women are different. Um, and so, I mean, this is Jesus's prayer, is it not? May they be one as we are one, you know? This, this design that we see here from, from the Lord is for us as humans to live in, in oneness with one another. And whenever he split the atom, uh, he took a rib from Adam. And I, nothing is on accident in the opening pages of your Bible. Have you ever thought about why it's a rib? Okay? And not out of his head or out of his foot, but out of his rib. Abby, can you come here? Visual illustration here. This is my wife, Abby. Go ahead and give it up. Okay. Can you come close to my rib? Thank you. Okay. Woman came from man's side, his rib. And a lot of the problems that we experience in these dynamics and these power struggles is a lot of this. We're trying to push each other down, or you can try to push me down too if you'd like. Okay, no, down, not over, but we did not rehearse that. Uh, that was your opportunity to beat me up in front of everybody. Um, but he designed it from, from the rib for us to be close. Uh, for us, the, the push and the pull to not be this power struggle of, in order for me to get ahead, I've got to push you down. And likewise, in this constant rivalry, but instead this design for us to come close. And that's not just, thank you. Uh, that's not just, thank you, beautiful assistant. Uh, that's not just in, in husband-wife relationships, but his prayer, Jesus' prayer is for us to be one, as he and the Father are one. And so that's Genesis 2, and then Genesis 3 comes. Okay, there's always a Genesis 3. Uh, Genesis 3 comes, and this is where the fall of man happens. And here we see uh, the woman interact with this crafty ser uh, serpent. I almost said crafty sermon. Uh, <laughs> crafty serpent. All you guys are like Freudian slip. Uh, this crafty serpent. And, you know, they have this interaction. And what eventually happens is that uh, she sees and takes the fruit that she was instructed not to as this way of, I mean, narratively, it's this way of seeking to seize autonomy from God to determine right and wrong, good and evil on our own terms. And so uh, she encounters the, the serpent, she sees and she takes, and now she goes and she shares it with the man. And then from there, everything just spirals down, okay? And so in the way that this narrative works is this is the, the biggest thread weaving through the storyline for women is this. And it's, it's not a great look, you know? Um, and so we'll, we'll come back and we'll circle back to that. But uh, even though that happened, we still see it these, these moments in the Old Testament of God raising up women to speak for him, to lead, and so that's what we're going to look at. Again, these are just a few. 
I'm not even including Esther, okay? So, but I'm not, also not doing a deep dive. All right, here we go. Enough, enough of that. First one we're going to look at, uh, well, I guess second one, Miriam, prophetess and worship leader. So Miriam, uh, sister of Moses and Aaron, and she's the first prominent female leader uh, in the Bible. And in Exodus 15, they just came out, they were, the Israelites were just delivered through the sea. And when they are, uh, chapter 15, verse 20, refers to Miriam as a prophetess. And she, she went and led the people in worship. And so uh, a few things here, it acknowledges Miriam as a prophetess, someone who spoke uh, for God. Uh, another thing is Miriam was one of, uh, of the three leaders uh, over Israel. And you have Moses, the lawgiver, Aaron, the priest, and Miriam, the prophetess. And the, the prophet Micah down the road, as he's reflecting on the deliverance of Israel, he doesn't just say, the Lord gave you Moses. Okay, but look at what he says in, in Micah chapter 6, verse 4. He said, this is Micah speaking on behalf of the Lord. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Okay, so we see Miriam as an example of being part of a, a leadership team. Uh, and the next one we're going to look at is Deborah. Deborah. So you'll find Deborah's story in, in the early parts of the book of Judges which the book of Judges is crazy, okay? If you, wanna, if, you think, <laughs> if you think you're jacked up, you should go read Judges. Uh, or if you think someone else is messed up, you should go read Judges, okay? It can always get worse. So, so Judges is at this point in Israel's history, whenever they've entered into the promised land, Moses is dead, Joshua is dead, They've entered into the promised land. And so there's no, like this one leader anymore. They're kind of in their tribes. And, and what ends up happening is the people, shocker, you'll never believe this, they start doing evil things, okay? And so the book of Judges opens with, there was evil in the land. And so what the Lord would do is he would raise, when, in response to this evil coming up in the land, he would raise up a judge. And the judge would come in and work on God's behalf and lead the people and do all of this stuff. And then they would pass or really mess up. And, uh, and then things would be okay for a bit. And then evil would, would come back. And so this cycle happens. Well, the first few judges do a pretty decent job, okay? And then it really just goes downhill to where by the end of the book, it's just no good, Okay. But we find Deborah in, in chapter 4. So uh, Judges 4, verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. It's funny to me the, the names that we, we like give our kids from Scripture and the names that we don't. Okay? <laughs> Deborah is acceptable. Okay? It's, pro it's approved. Uh, Lapidoth just... Uh, you're going to make your kid real tough if you name him that name, if that's what you're after. It's like a boy named Sue. Um, so it's a song. Look it up sometime. Okay. Uh, so, and she was judging Israel at the time. So when we think of judges, don't think courtroom judge. A judge looked more like a, a tribal leader. Now, they, they did hear cases, make decisions, get wisdom, as a prophetess, she also uh, spoke on behalf of God. But being a, a judge was God's response to the evil in the land, him raising up uh, a judge to, to partner with him in the, del the delivering of the people. And so Deborah, if you haven't read her story, you need to go check it out. Uh, she, she was an awesome woman. And her, with her story, you know, it talks about her making judgments and decisions and things like this. And then she, she calls this guy out, uh, Barak, and tells him, like, hey, um, the Lord is, is calling you to go into battle, and he's giving your enemies over to you. And, 
he said, his response was, hey, if you go with me, I'll go. And she said, okay, well, I'll go with you. Just know that you're not getting any glory out of this, okay? Uh, your enemy's gonna be killed by a woman. And, uh, and so he's like, all right, you know, let's go. So they go into to battle and of the day, like the day of the battle, she gives this like, I don't know if I can give this reference. Uh, she gives like a, a brave heart speech, kind of, if you know what that is, then great. If not, don't say my pastor approved this movie, okay? Uh, but this William Wallace kind of like, like, this is the day that the Lord is going to deliver your enemy into your hands, you know, and like really pumps the people up. And so they go into battle and they win the battle. And so, and then chapter five is, uh, is a, a song that I'm not going to sing uh, despite your desire to hear me sing. So, uh, but you see in, in Deborah, like if, if, you know, a, a woman cannot give instruction to men, and that is an, for all, all women for all time, uh, it's tough to make sense of what's happening here. Because the Lord, it's not just she like kind of swindled her way into it. The Lord raised her up for this purpose. And, and she was faithful to it. And because of it, uh, the people of, of God uh, experienced victory. So let's see. The, the next one I want to look at in the Old Testament is King Lemuel's mother. Okay? Bit of a deep cut here. Uh, King Lemuel's mother. And Proverbs 31, can't talk about women and not bring up Proverbs 31 at some point, but I'm just going to read verse one. Okay. Verse one says the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. And then it goes into Proverbs 31, but the first nine verses of Proverbs 31 are instructions for, for men. So instructions such as, you know, don't give yourself over to these crazy, to, to like, um, how do you put that? The, to, to certain women. Uh, so don't give yourself over to that. Also, don't give yourself over to strong drink because that's what ruins kings. You know? And so there's this instruction being given on uh, like that's applicable to men in the first nine verses. And eight and nine are really interesting as well, talking about like, hey, stick up for the, speak out for the oppressed and the silenced. Um, interesting given her position in society. But the, the point that I'm making here is if women cannot instruct men is a for all women for all time uh, law, then what are you to do with this? Why, like, what are we to do with this part of the Bible? That is the words of a woman giving instruction that is applicable to men, you know? And so just kind of highlighting that. And so there are multiple other examples, but I don't have time for that. Uh, just see that in the Old Testament, we see women speaking on behalf of God. We see uh, God raising women up to lead, to make decisions. Uh, we see women giving instruction, sound godly instruction uh, for men. And so now I want to shift and see, you know, fast forward a few hundred years and look at how Jesus interacted with women, okay? The, the context, the social context in Jesus's time was Palestine, it was first century Palestinian Judaism, which is a mouthful. But from the, the return of the Babylonian exile, there was this creation of Judaism, this extension of the Torah and these laws and uh, things became a, a bit more strict in areas, and one of the areas was uh, was how women were viewed. And women at this time in in Judaism, not necessarily in the wider culture as much, but in Judaism, women were considered second class citizens. They were considered property, um, and their place was very limited. And 
they weren't to be taught or instructed. In fact, this is not all, but some rabbis viewed uh, even just speaking with women, even their own wife, uh, was a waste of time. And I could make so many jokes there, but I'm not going to. Keep moving. Okay, you don't have time. So uh, speaking was, was a waste of time because it, it could distract you from studying Torah um, and could even, in, in some, some of their writings, uh, could lead to such an evil that it would lead to Gehenna, which is hell. Um, other rabbis wrote about and instructed uh, that for you to teach your daughters Torah, uh, you might as well teach them how to be a prostitute. Uh, it was seen as like that, that much of an evil uh, for you to do that. Um, so this is the context that Jesus is interacting with these women in, okay? Uh, it's easy to kind of take our, like, our current context and just assume that that's what's happening here, but it's a much different context. Very, uh, very oppressive in, in many ways. And that's not across the board, but that's just kind of giving you a feel for uh, the, the culture that they're in. So we're going to look at a few interactions that Jesus had with women. Next week, we'll look more at the, the water culture though. But the first one that we're going to look at is Mary, the mother of Jesus. In John chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, so, I didn't write this down, so I'm going to have to look at the notes, Mac. But on the third day, there was, so John 2, verses 1 through 5. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, <laughs> what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love that. Like, that's just, that's, that's mom flex right there. That is a mom flexing on her grown son. And uh, what's, what's interesting here, uh, if you're a child, do what your mom tells you, okay? As long as it's not sin, honor your mom. So, but what's interesting here is notice what Jesus doesn't do or say. When his mom, grant he's a grown man, okay? When his mom says like, hey, they have no wine, you need to fix this. And he says, what does it have to do with me? Okay, it's not my time yet. And she goes, just do whatever he tells you, you know? And what Jesus doesn't say is, do you not know your place? Do you not know who I am? Like, I know you're my mom, but I'm a grown man, okay? That time, that ship has sailed, okay? Know your place, know when to talk, know, know when to be quiet. What Jesus ends up doing is he goes and he turns the water into wine, and it's his first sign. And this is, I, I think there are these little nuggets along the way that are, are significant. This being his first sign. And notice what happens as, as a result of this miracle. It says, the, the Apostle John says that this was his first sign. This, I think it's in verse 11, but it's his first sign. His disciple, or uh, he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what was the result of what happened? His disciples believed in Jesus. Jesus was glorified. Keep that in mind when we come to this next story. So that happens in John chapter 2. John chapter 3, Jesus has this, uh, this really interesting conversation with, uh, with a man who is like top of the food chain, very well educated, the teacher of teachers. I mean, he's a big deal, okay? And they have this conversation, this interaction. And then the chapter right after that is John chapter 4. So right after he comes out of this conversation with Nicodemus, we find Jesus sitting at a well about midday. And this woman walks up 
And this was atypical because women typically didn't go get water by themselves, and they typically did it either in the morning or in the evening when it, when it was cool. So that tells you, that tells us, the reader, a few things about this woman. Um, that she's, she appears to be rejected by her peers. And so Jesus is just sitting there waiting, and the woman comes up, and now they have this this interaction as well. And so Jesus, I, I think John is comparing and tr- contrasting that you have this very well-educated, very important man in this nobody woman, who's not just a woman, but she's a Samaritan. And John's saying, both of these people, completely different lives, completely different situations, but they have this in common. They both need Jesus. And he's having this conversation with this woman and uh, about asking for a drink and then uh, going into some of her personal life. And it, if you're not familiar with the story, you should, you should go and read it, but I'll speed up. Um, and I'll jump to uh, verse 23. Jesus talking with her, he said, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Few interesting notes here is that Jesus educated a woman. This was a radical thing uh, in this culture. He gives what is arguably the most profound revelation about worship to a Samaritan woman. This is where I'm saying why it's important for us to to dig into this together is because we're going to learn more about God than anything else. What does this say about the nature of God? And so he, he reveals this to her. He educated women. And in John 2, we see his first sign. In John 4, we see the first time that he reveals himself as Messiah. And the first person he reveals himself to Messiah to is a nobody, a Samaritan woman, bottom of the social totem pole. What is this saying? What is this telling us? Jumping to verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that indeed this is the savior of the world. What what is, okay, our response to this question of what can women do and not do, what's their role? Our response to it can cost us cities. Pastor Jacob's in a series right now on transforming communities. If Jesus had said, you're, I'm not going to teach you, you're a woman, also don't share, you're not allowed to, uh, to take what you've learned and share it. You can't teach, you can't instruct, you can't whatever. Um, a city was at stake. So our, the way we think about this not only affects us, our families, but it also affects our communities. This woman had influence. Bottom of the pole, okay? Bottom of the, the hierarchy, whatever. But yet... Leadership isn't a title. Leadership is influence. She had an encounter with Jesus and she went and she took that and she shared it. 
And the people that she shared it with were influenced by her word and came out to check out this one who might be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. A title doesn't make a leader. Next one, Mary of Bethany. You can find this in Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, John 12. This one will be pretty brief. Uh, Mary of Bethany comes in and uh, Jesus is at Simon the leper's house and he's reclining at a table. And Mary comes in and she takes this expensive ointment and a year's worth of wages and she takes it and she breaks it and she pours the oil uh, on the head of Jesus. And when she does this, the disciples start looking at her and saying, what a waste. Like we could have sold this and fed the poor and done all of these great things. AKA I could have taken some off the side of that. Um, and what a waste. And Jesus says this, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you'll always have the poor with you and wherever and whenever you want, you can, do so, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Beautiful. In the Old Testament, there, there were not uh, women priests. Here, what Mary is doing, and we've talked about this before, um, but what Mary's doing is a priestly act. She's anointing him with oil. In 1 Peter 2, uh, we, this, we've spent time on this. So if you want more information on that, you can check out our priest series. But this is a, a priestly act. The last one that we're going to look at is Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary, so different Marys, it's kind of hard to follow. Uh, but Mary Magdalene was one of Jesus' fo closest followers. Um, he had uh, cleansed her of seven demons. And so she had, you know, she had some past. Um, and so, but she was faithful. And I mean, as you read her story, she just had a, a heart and a love for Jesus. That's beautiful. And I want to read from John chapter 20. And this is, for sake of time, I'm probably going to um, paraphrase the first 10 verses. But in John chapter 20, it's the resurrection. And uh, they go to the tomb. They see that the, the tomb's empty. Uh, Peter and the disciple John, or the disciple that Jesus loves, get in a race. And John has to throw in there that he won the race. Um, uh, but they get there, they look in, and they see that the stone's rolled away, that Jesus isn't there. Um, and then Peter and John leave, okay, in a nutshell. Verse 11, so the verse just before, the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped, stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
whenever we, we went through Genesis 3, I said that we'd come back to it or we're back to it. In Genesis 3, you have the woman being the first one to encounter the serpent. In John 20, you have the woman being the first one to encounter the Savior. In Genesis 3, you have the woman seeing and taking the fruit, a way of seeking to seize autonomy from God, distance ourselves from God, elevate ourselves above God, determine what is right and wrong on our own terms. In John 20, you see the woman seeing and taking hold of Jesus's feet. Matthew 28, in the account, Mary falls to her knees and grabs his feet and worships him. Instead of seeking to distance ourselves or seeking to elevate ourselves, what she does is she falls to her knees and she comes in close and she grabs his feet and she worships. And in Genesis 3, the woman takes the fruit and she shares it with the man. In John 20, Mary, the woman, takes her encounter with the risen Savior and she takes it and she shares it with the men. She goes back to the disciples and said, tells them, I've seen the risen Christ. He's alive. In Genesis 3, the woman was on the front line of the garden becoming a grave. And in John 20, the woman is on the front line of the grave becoming a garden. What's happening here? God is restoring the dignity of women. That storyline that's been going through the whole Bible, God is restoring their dignity. Is this not what God does? Is this not what God does for anyone? The thing that's been hanging, the thing that was hanging over their head, he comes and he restores it. The thing that's been hanging over our head, the things that we've done in the past, our failures, our mistakes, all of these things, what does God do? He comes and he comes in close and he calls us by name. And he extends this invitation for all those things to be rewritten. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. This is what our God does. He takes the old and he exchanges it for new. He takes the broken and he brings healing. He takes the ashes and he brings beauty. Beauty. 